jump into it. I normally just start recording straight away and then I'll cut in when we start talking, I guess. And Sure. One thing, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, say whatever you want. All right. Like, not like I'm going to just pretty <laughs> no, much... Like, like unleash say, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, I've been on some where I just say, like, shit, and then I go, like, oh, I'm not meant to say shit, and then I say fuck, and then I'm like, oh, you know, but I'll try. Uh, yeah, the family-friendly ones are a bit tough, but anyway. Yeah, it was when I went on, like, the Christian Values Fitness Podcast that I got really fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you go off on those tangents denouncing God, it really sticks in their craw. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Fitness is just a satanic ritual to my own body. (laughs) I I am an idol that I worship. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) All good. Oh, we are recording. Good that we got that. We are recording. I'm going to leave that in. So I'll do the intro now, but I'll leave that in. (laughs) Okay. uh, So welcome, everybody. Another episode of the podcast. I've got my mate, Will Berkman, blasphemer, heretic, general fitness god in his own right as he believes however cool. no hair gel today so welcome will g'day um thanks so much for having me on thrilled that it's an audio only podcast um <laughs> i had to clarify that before we started recording i said i'm i'm boycotting if there's any video involved so yeah we're good to go. well it's understandable considering you know the state of the mop but i'm not one to speak so that's all fine no, not at all. Actually, you're looking, that beard has, it's not like disheveled, but it's, it's kind of thickened a little bit and it's got a bit more of that medieval Norse look happening. Like before it looked cultivated when you were in the inner West, you looked like a <laughs> hipster. Whereas now it's, now you look like you've been sort of out in the fjords just looking for enemies, you know? Well, yeah, you know, countryside of Sweden, you have to do that because otherwise the moose gets too, you know, sort of assertive. If they yeah. see that you're too cultivated, too hipster, they really take their their chances. So you have to try and do your best to scare them, keep them at bay. And that's what it's I was like a mane. It's an intimidation thing, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, you know, how lions try and go with the mane. I'm trying to do that, but just for like maybe an eighth of the radius around my head. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a huge head. I mean, if you went the other seven eighths, <laughs> you'd, you'd be 200 kilos of hair, wouldn't you? <laughs> It'd be tough. Uh, it, it would be tough. It, it won't stop me from trying, but it'll be tough. Uh, so look, um, we got a little bit to talk about today. I think you've been posting some cool stuff on your Instagram lately. And like, obviously we chat a fair bit um, about various topics in fitness. Uh, and I guess I wanted to kick it off by having a bit of a chat about um, progressive overload, because I noticed you post something uh, or fairly recently, but it's something that we kind of talk about a bit. And I think there's tons of confusion about, you know, progressive overload in the context of training with, with weights, whether that's for strength or for hypertrophy. And I just kind of wanted to get your general ideas around it. So maybe if you had a bit of a, you know, a, a definition of what we mean by that uh, or your definition of it, and, and then we can kind of go from there. Sure. Um, so I'd say that my thoughts on progressive overload I mean, that actually came to be after a whole lot of thinking about it where I started saying like the things that I know to be true in training, I couldn't really reconcile with this simplistic idea of, of progressive overload, meaning that I just had to add weight or add reps every single session or else my training was a failure. Like when I had that as my blanket definition of progressive overload is, is the acute addition of 
sets, reps and load that has to occur at all times to be productive. I was like, that just doesn't play out in reality. Um, but fundamentally progressive overload still is exactly that. It is the addition of training stress and that training stress could be the addition of sets. It could be the addition of reps, load. Could It could be some progression in the difficulty of the exercise in another way, but it is an increase in training stress. And the, the first thing that I read that really, really began to help me crystallize my thoughts around it, um, you know, sort of express the thoughts that I was, I was having myself, but just way better, was a piece by Brian Miner. And it came out in, I think, January of 2018. Um, and the, the piece that's on his website, I think it's called Myo Journal. Um, and the piece itself is called something like, is load progression necessary for hypertrophy? And he went in and he spoke about sort of, he spoke about the bi-directional relationship between training progress and progressive overload itself. And then Eric Helms in the last um, last edition of Mass also wrote wrote a piece that talks about a progression framework for hypertrophy training. And in that he, he sort of describes, he describes the same concepts. And basically the way, the way I see progress, uh, progressive overload or the way I think it should be applied in a practical sense is as we train, we need to apply some level of requisite stress. There's some threshold of perturbation that we need to, that we need to apply to our body before it's actually going to adapt. Um, and as we get better and better, essentially what we're doing is improving our ability to perform tasks in the direction of whatever that stress was. And we fortify ourselves to further perturbation. And so in order to continue to promote adaptation, the stress needs to go up, but it doesn't necessarily follow from that, that once we have applied a stress, that stress is forever insufficient to make us better again. So, so if we were to think about somebody who goes to, you know, say you're a 100 kilogram squatter and you're doing your sets of 10 at 60 kilos or something. The first week, if you do your sets of 10 at 60 kilos, that might be sufficient to promote adaptation. And if you came back four or five days later and you've gone through a more or less full adaptation cycle, and you do sets of 10 with 60 kilos again. It's not like you don't get any adaptation from that. Um, the reduction in adaptation that you might get from that is going to be mostly concomitant with, with the degree of adaptation that you've got and you know, maybe a little bit of nip and tuck around the edges for the fact that you just, you just do accommodate stimuli over time. But where progressive overload comes in is eventually those sets of 10 at 60 kilos are suddenly insufficient. They don't meet that threshold to promote adaptation anymore. Or if they do it's in such a manner that it's, it's not a robust enough adaptation to actually mean anything over the course of a training week or block. And so we need to increase the stress. And so, you know, we do it by adding reps or adding loads so that suddenly we're at a similar proximity to failure and at, at an actual cellular level, you know, the muscle fibers are being forced to produce tension for, you know, of an equal magnitude for a roughly equal amount of time so that we continue to get, to, we continue to get in this instance the growth response or the strength adaptations that we're after so what is progressive overload it is the act of adding training stress but we add training stress stress both as a consequence of and a necessity to propagate further adaptation and really when we think about when do we add training stress to the program our thoughts should be centered more around further producing adaptation as opposed to just dialing up the stress because it's possible to dial up the stress, if that makes sense. Yeah, cool. Okay, so that's awesome. Um, so essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to make things harder over time. But in your opinion, is there a, is there a place for planning that ahead of time or is it something that has to happen 
reactively as you're training? Um, I like, I actually, my thoughts kind of have been oscillating around this because when I first got into coaching, I did so reasonably successfully using really top down systems where I planned, I planned things in advance a lot. And all I would do is have, have a plan and then make little adaptations to that plan as we sort of were going along in light of, you know, whatever came up in the athletes training and whether that was on a week by week basis or I made adjustments to the next block on the basis of what happened in this one, I was still operating very much from a top down plan. And I might say 16 weeks out that I want somebody to be doing X or Y for sets of five. And that worked. So I don't think, I don't think that I can necessarily say that that's not appropriate provided that you do it intelligently, but more and more I've moved towards, towards this sort of more emergent approach where I say, look, here's roughly the dose of training that I expect to get an effect. And the degree of effects that we get is going to be subject to so many other factors. It's going to be subject to the amount of stress you have, the way you sleep, the way you eat. You know, it's going, to, it's going to have to do with the amount of accommodation you've had to that particular training stress. It might just be that the stimuli is getting a bit stale. We don't know, but we can apply it. And if we use some subjective monitoring tools, so we measure them, the amount of reps in reserve after a set, if it's got a prescribed load and volume target, or we measure performance at a given RPE, whatever it is, and we see from that, is the athlete getting better? And if they're not getting better within a reasonable time frame, then maybe we make, we make adjustments to the stress. But I don't think that those two things are entirely in opposition either. And I, I spend a lot of time working with like powerlifting athletes, say, where, you know, one, one good example is my client, John Paul Kauke, um, really strong lifter, really good. He's been a world champion and had world record deadlifts and things. And something that we've noticed predictably is often that he'll have two or three weeks of sort of building momentum, a down week, and then he'll be right back. He'll be right back to progressing. And so I might, I might plan out a training block for him where that has roughly that contour, but then within it, I might not prescribe exact load progressions, say, because I won't know exactly what an RPE aid in week three will be. And sometimes he'll exceed my expectations and sometimes he won't. But, but by programming with, with enough flexibility in there that I can actually see the progress that the training is making rather than just trying to force somebody to perform you know, however I want them to perform and then hoping that that's the case. I, I sort of get a bit of the best of both worlds. Did that make any sense the way I said it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, it's not a black or white thing where things have to be pre-planned or where you kind of have no plan moving forward. It's kind of building in some flexibility. Um, and, and I think probably a big part of that is just like you just mentioned is taking training history and understanding how you tend to respond to things because um, you know, I've had this issue before, especially with online coaching clients where you can't sort of uh, give them immediate feedback on, you know, performing a lift or an exercise or something like that. And they kind of want to, to understand like, okay, um, how much should I increase my weight each week? Like how many more reps should I do each week? All that sort of stuff. And it's a little bit like, well, like I've got an idea, but it's not going to happen linearly like that all the time, right? So there's a little bit of a conflict there where, like, yes, you need some structure, but you also need some flexibility built in. Does that kind of characterize what you're, what you're saying a bit? Yeah, it does. Um, and I also think that kind of what you said, like the, the need for structure um, kind of comes out when we start applying this stuff in like a practical sense. 
So, you know, in one way, it would be really good for me to pretty much just say, go do roughly this dose of training and come back. And depending on the amount, if adapted, I'll do some wizardry behind behind my keyboard and exactly adjust the training dose. That doesn't really play out, but also also on a practical level, like there's a degree of there's a degree of sort of like meta planning that is just beneficial in training. And so, you know, one of the, one of the big things I've come to realize is beneficial about say periodization generally is that it allows us to sort of logically sequence training so that we can get better. Um, we can get better at one thing that follows from another. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to write 26 week training blocks that are incredibly detailed in week one. But it still might make sense to say, hey, you know, we're going to do a hypertrophy phase and follow it with a strength one. And in doing that, we get a lot of the benefits of a variation of a training stress. We prevent staleness, we prevent you know, psychological burnout and things like that too. And, you know, that itself takes a degree of planning. And so, and so once we have like some practical constraints where we say, well, we're only going to push, we're only going to push for strength increases for six-ish weeks. And I really want you to be your best in week six and not be peaking in week four that might necessitate that I say we're going to start at this load or at this slightly lower level of training stress than we would normally train at because I only expect you to get say back to JP's example I expect you to get three or four weeks of really productive training up before you hit your peak so again that's that's an observation based on prior training it's not necessarily entirely top-down planning but I use that observation I say okay where we'll, well, we'll have, you know, one or two introductory weeks, and then we'll go to roughly our level of normal training stress that we would expect to train at, um, you know, with whatever other structures that we might impose over it, some level of undulation, whatever it happens to be, so that at the time that we want you to be peaking, you're peaking. And then that itself might still be sitting within a yearly plan. So there is top-down planning that happens, but the, the day in, day out, week in, week out, adjustments that have to happen on the fly should be happening on the fly because, because you know we can't re like realistically predict what's going to happen with too much granularity from a long way away, and where that comes all the way back to progressive overload is sort of that the proof is in the pudding. So if I if I say we're going to do this this six week um, training phase for again John Paul Kauke, um, if I say we're going to do that, and after we've run that six week phase, we're not meaningfully better than the last time we did something comparable and in his instance because he's a very high level athlete there might be a bit more noise but like say you're an intermediate you would expect to actually see some progress and if you don't and we can't attribute it immediately to some external factor you know your goldfish died in week four and that threw you off or something if we can't attribute it to that then we've got to say okay something about the training dose has to change possibly we need to increase training stress but if they are getting better week on week and we are using these subjective monitoring tools like RPE or measuring reps and reserve or whatever, whatever it happens to be, then we are going to see overload occur naturally as a consequence of the training. Where people might go wrong, again, going all the way back to my definition of progressive overload is where people might go wrong is in the course of, say, a six-week training block for hypertrophy. They might say, well, you know, I can do 60 kilos for three sets of 10 now. So in week six, um, you know, I'm just going to add two and a half kilos a week and I'm going to add a set every week as well to make sure that the training stress is always going up. And so, you know, week one might start at two sets of 10 at 57 kilos and by week six where whatever that happens to be, like 67 kilos for six sets of 10. That's a massive increase in training stress and possibly you'll actually see, you'll see the meet and, 
meet and sort of perform your performance performance benchmark at the end, in which case good training, great. Um, but it's not, it's not necessarily true that all those increases in training stress were necessary or even true that all those increases in training stress actually yielded you better results. And so when we think about progressive overload, it's got to be informed by like, is the training dose currently sufficient to spur adaptation in the way that we want? If not, we're going to increase it. And if the training dose, meaning like the total amount of volume and just roughly how difficult our training is each time we apply the training stress, if that is sufficient, then we should just be seeing improvements in performance emerge. And those improvements in performance are progressive overload because we're lifting more weight or we're doing more reps or whatever it happens to be. Did that add a little bit of clarity? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's super interesting because I think uh, there's that that desire to have the, um, the structure in place and to look at a plan and go, oh, cool, if I follow this plan, I will lift X amount more, uh, you know, in six weeks time or 12 weeks time or something like that. Um, but there is that level of, you know, unpredictability and and that's uh, a little tough especially when you're thinking that there's a bunch of different other variables that are going to influence things like your recovery and you know your psychological state and, and trainability in general um you know is there anything in particular that you do to account for that stuff that's external to simply the the training variables that you provide um, I mean, I do monitor, I do monitor how my athletes are feeling and I actually don't use a, I don't use like a formal questionnaire or anything, but I do ask them. I have a weekly check-in with my athletes where I say, Hey, you know, how's your sleep been this week? Has there been any, like any outside of training stresses that might've impacted how you went? Have you had to make any accommodations in your schedule um, or in your training schedule for life stuff this week? You know, could you have mitigated that by better planning and here and there, People will say, I slept really badly, you know, whatever. I broke up with my missus and work's been really busy. Um, and often that explains some of the things we're seeing in their training performance. And then because, you know, if I'm doing online coaching, say I'm not necessarily in the room with somebody and able to make, make the changes on the fly, we use order regulation and things or just some boundaries around my expectations of them in training to let them make adjustments on the fly. And in doing that, you develop people who have a, have a better sense of ownership for their training, but also understand actually what they're trying to achieve. And if I bring this kind of all the way back to that thing I said about like that requisite level of stress to promote adaptation. Um, for many of my lifters, I do give them prescribed load and volume targets. And here and there, I'll do that within a range or I'll give them an RPE indication. And then I'll say to them, you know, this is your license to bump weights off if, if it doesn't feel that hard pull weights back if they don't feel that hard. Sometimes I'll give them a range of sets. I'll say do three to five sets, you know, as like that much variation, which is quite a lot with an RPE guideline. And once people start to understand that like their goal in training is to, you know, promote growth or promote strength or whatever the, whatever the actual objective of your training is, and they actually know how to titrate the dose in light of their state when they walk into the gym, then suddenly you get people who are much better at riding those waves um, of readiness that we all we all sort of are subject to. Yeah, awesome. Uh, very cool. I, I like the idea quite a lot, and I think 
you know, for a lot of people, they try and overthink it to a great extent. It's obviously a pretty complex thing if we're thinking about all the stuff that's going on physiologically. But, you know, fundamentally, like you said, if we keep that overall goal in mind that we're trying to provide a stimulus for adaptation um, and, and how do we best do that, then I think the, you know, it's, it's more the general direction that you're moving in that's more important. Like I remember we did a, I can't remember where this was, but I, I did a live, like a, a paid webinar thing some at some point. And someone asked the question like, hey, can you, can you give us an idea of programming over, you know, like three months or whatever? And it's like, well, and they wanted specifics because I think they were frustrated with like, yeah, well, you know, at the, you know, if you're 12 weeks away from a meet, you should generally be doing higher reps and less specific stuff. And then as you get closer, you get more specific and heavier loads and all this sort of thing. And I think they were frustrated in not having a, this is how many reps you should be doing. And this is what weight you should be lifting. Um, but fundamentally, you can't really provide the specifics of that. And it's kind of not the point. It's more like if we're in this general ballpark and we're ticking these boxes, then, you know, there's a bit of wiggle room in there and it's going to be individualized. Uh, so I think that's an interesting thing that, that people should keep in mind is that whether it's strength training or hypertrophy training, it, it's not the specific numbers that we're hitting or the specific you know, volume counts. It's like, you know, what's the, what's the fundamental difference between doing 12 sets a week on your arms versus like 14 sets a week. It's probably not going to be measurable. Um, it's, it's more just the concept of like, Oh, are we doing more volume than what we were doing before? Are we doing less volume? What general direction are we moving? In? Um, yeah. So I think we're probably on the same page with that, but you know, to, to kind of bounce off that idea, it, is there a, like, and maybe it's going to be different between hypertrophy training and strength training, although they, they do have a lot of overlap. Um, is there a, a way that you like to sort of progress people or like what, what variables are you manipulating? Are you, are you changing training volume by maybe uh, giving more sets? Are you, are you asking them to lift a heavier load, which then increases the sort of um, absolute training volume load? How are you sort of thinking about progressing people in a program? Um, it does depend on the goal because, and it, even within a program that is directed at one goal, it might depend on the exercise as well. Um, so if we again think about like what I was saying before about just providing the requisite level of stress, um, if you have somebody who's doing an exercise, say like a lateral raise, if you're doing three sets and whether they're eight rep sets, 10 rep sets or 15 rep sets that are within about two reps in reserve of each other, they're going to be roughly equally stimulative. And so within that, I might still write in avenues for progression to my athletes. I might say in week one, do three sets with three reps in reserve. And then week two becomes do three reps, three sets with two reps in reserve. And then, um, and then do three sets with one rep in reserve or something. And that gives them an avenue to try and squeeze out an extra rep. That's actually increased the difficulty of the training stimulus, but that's an example. And an alternative might be the same week one, we're going to do three sets of 15 with one to two reps in reserve. Week two, we do three sets of 12 and week two, we do three sets of 10. And from what we know about hypertrophy training programming, that's actually a roughly equivalent stress. Like there's no, there's no actual difference between doing three sets of 10 close to failure and three sets of 15 close to failure from a hypertrophy standpoint, but it does give them an avenue to see an increase in load that they're lifting, which is nice. And then I can repeat that cycle and they might do it one kilo heavier because it's only a lateral raise. But for, but for an exercise, like a large compound lift, like a squat or something, where I can just say to somebody, do this um, and add two kilos if it was less than RPE eight next week, 
and then do it again and add two kilos for less than RPE eight and go on and go on and go on. I might just do exactly that. Um, I don't typically add a lot of set volume across my blocks. Um, I do, I very often do an introductory week and I use that introductory week just to familiarize people with the exercises and, you know, make sure that they don't get like crazy amounts of soreness or muscle damage or anything from week one. But basically once we're, once we're in the swing of a training program, I pretty much leave the set volume dose close to equal unless there's really no viable avenue for me to actually progress, you know, reps or load or something within a set without crazily jacking up the proximity to failure. So again, in the lateral raise example, if you've got somebody where they're doing lateral raises with two kilos and taking them to three is just going to be way, way too much. Then I might say do three sets with one to two reps in reserve for weeks two and three. And then for weeks four and five, they might do four or five sets or something there. But otherwise I pretty much keep set volume constant and just, just try and build in ways for them to increase, um, increase load lifted. And that sort of short linear example I gave you with the lateral raises, that's something, um, that's something that I actually picked up from my current coach, Bryce Lewis, um, because he was doing that for a whole bunch of accessories across the course of my blocks. And I sort of had that thought of like, well, this doesn't, it's not meaningful from a physiological perspective for me to go from doing a set of 12 to a set of nine over three weeks. But that, that actually puts me in the mindset of trying to eke out just a little bit more weight and trying a little bit harder is actually really beneficial as silly as that sounds. And, and so I do think almost in the same way as your mate was asking you for, for specific programming, just having something of a plan on paper that encourages you to actually try hard and take the progress that is there is useful too. So I'm, I try and write in frameworks that encourage people to do that, but I try and draw a line between encouraging them to do it and prescribing progression that they may not be able to sustain, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I think one thing that a lot of people don't consider specifically, if you're increasing the number of sets you're doing, the amount of training volume that you do effectively increases by such an, a large percentage, uh, versus, you know, trying to progress on something like load or whatever, where you can still make some progress, but you're not suddenly getting like a, a 20% or a 25% increase in the amount of training volume that you're doing, which then, you know, might impact your recovery significantly for the rest of the program. Um, so I think it's kind of an interesting thing because that, that set volume um, progression is something that's, I think, getting more and more common. Uh, but my mindset has always been that if you find a stimulative dose of training volume and you train sufficiently close to failure, like, is there really a reason to be changing that drastically within, you know, like a four-week program, for example? Um you know, so it's something that sometimes I still use, but I, I do think that like, if we found that creamy middle of, you know, let's use the, the MRV terminology, like we're not at maximum recoverable volume. We're not at the minimum effective volume. We're somewhere in the middle where we're getting nice adaptations. Uh, do we really want to rock the boat by adding like a ton more training volume on a bunch of different exercises? Yeah. I, I've never been entirely sold on the idea. And one of the reasons I've always liked reasonably moderate, reasonably moderate doses of training as well, and maybe having that little bit of wiggle room to add or subtract a set, depending on how an athlete's feeling, is it does give you just that little bit of redundancy either side as well. So if you do come in on a bad day, your training is still achievable. 
Um, that's, that doesn't necessarily entirely invalidate the model of adding sets, but it's just like a practical consideration that I think is useful. Where I do think the idea of sort of working from low volumes to the highest sustainable volume might kind of be helpful is it, it kind of ensures that eventually you're working hard enough. <laughs> and like, that's not the best defense for it because you could also just ensure that you're working hard enough by like programming more intelligently and training hard. Um, but if you were somebody who was inclined to maybe do too little to get the most that you could out of your training or not lift heavy enough and close enough to failure in each of your sets to get maximally stimulative sets, then by adding more and more sets, you're probably going to get more return on your training. And when you look at the hypertrophy literature, the studies that show people getting really good returns from the highest of volumes are usually those that have people performing kind of lower quality work. So, you know, higher reps with probably more reps in reserve on restricted rest periods and things like that. And, and, you know, your training is going to be hard one way or another. Like if you're somebody who says, I'm going to do moderate training volumes, um, reasonably close to failure, like your 10 or 14 sets a week or something should feel pretty hard. If you like, if you want to actually progress, if you're doing 10 or 14 sets and it's not hard, then chances are you're not working very hard either. Um, and if you're somebody who's like training, you know, my training doesn't feel hard until I'm doing, you know, until I've progressed from 10 or 14 sets to like week four of my program where I'm doing 25, probably your 10 or 14 sets weren't very hard. And the 25 is actually close to the dose that's going to make you grow the best because suddenly the training's hard. And that goes all the way back to that, to what I was saying about like, you need to get sufficient stress in your training to promote adaptation. And so, so if you have a model that makes sure that you at least at some point are exposed to sufficient stress to actually get you to adapt. And then it builds in recovery by having you drop your sets back and add up again. It's going to work. So it's viable. I just don't think it's necessary. Yeah, cool. Uh, that That's very similarly along the lines of my thoughts as well. Um, you know, and sometimes I will, if I know, uh, I know the psychology of the client. Um, if they're not someone who really like pushes themselves to bleed every set sort of thing, then, you know, I think you can safely program a little bit more training volume just to, or the number of sets just to, to cover your bases. Because as you mentioned, you know, if you're really pushing hard, then um, it, it's a case of those sets being very stimulative. Um, so, I mean, that's all like, it's all fairly complex when we, when we sort of explain all of these things that you have to think about, but I think, you know, this might transition well into talking a bit more about communicating with clients. And, um, you know, you mentioned a few times that how you've sort of explained to clients how to modify their program on a day or like, this is what we're chasing uh, or whatever it is. Um, could you maybe speak a bit towards like, as a coach, you obviously have, a concept of what you're trying to achieve with your training and you understand the physiology and the science and all that stuff behind it. I wouldn't make that assumption at all. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. (laughs) How do you, how do you communicate that to your clients? Um, You know, at like at what, what level of technicality are you getting with them? Um, I suppose the language you use is probably quite important. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit? Yeah. um, So the thing about communication is that it's goal oriented and when you're talking to a client i actually um i'm doing at the moment a mentorship with kyle dobbs of compound performance i know you're on his podcast yeah cool and he said something really funny in one of his lectures which was that he was describing breathing drills to a lot of his general population clients as absent us right 
Um, and so the breathing drills are designed to try and to try and get your rib cage and pelvis in opposition to each other, right? So as in, you know, functions of the abs and ass, we're getting you in a bit of posterior tilt and getting that stacked position. But the majority of general population clients don't really care about that. And so he went to the simplest possible relatable language that also tied into their goals, right? And then it gave them a reason to do the exercises. Um, as coaches, we often find it kind of dissatisfying to not have a chance to like flex our knowledge to our clients. And if you're like, you know, Luke and myself, when we were colleagues, a lot of the people who hire us, hire us because they're like, oh, these guys have advanced technical knowledge that they can convey to me. So I don't like try and keep that behind lock and key. If they ask me a question, I answer it. But when I explain programming concepts and stuff to athletes, I like to think like, what's the information that's going to be useful to this person? And how am I going to convey it? And even the way in which I program, I might change, I might even change the language of programming more to evoke the response that I want than to necessarily convey the most always factually correct information. So with things like adjusting the training dose, for some more intellectually curious athletes and things, I will, I will say, hey, you know, this is exactly why, blah, 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 sufficient stimuli, blah, 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 like measuring progress over time, you know, blah, 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 like baseline stress in your life, all this stuff. And they lap it up and they love it. Um, and for other athletes, I will just literally write on the paper with no explanation, like, you know, if this feels hard, do this. If this feels easy, do that. Because to them, having too much, like having too much thought about what it's saying about, you know, their preparedness or the state of their physiology or something is actually just an extra stress. Um, and so I do, I do try and titrate it to the client that I'm working with. But one of the, one of the things that, um, that I've again sort of slowly come to realize and, um, and I've got to credit Jamie Smith, who again, I know you've, I think you've had him on your podcast and you've certainly been on his, um, the way that they at Melbourne strength culture talk about RPE training. One of the things I've, I've come to realize more and more as I've used it is that the training itself is the teaching tool. And so, you know, when you ask people to actually start taking some note of like their performance and how they're feeling subjectively, um, you can't help but start to relate that a little bit to what you are doing in training and perhaps what you should be doing. And you can't help but start saying, wow, you know, training feels easier this week than last week or vice versa. And sort of starting, starting to draw some relationships between your observations. And then part of your role as a coach is either to validate or, or nix those observations. If somebody has a belief that might be self-limiting, you know, you might have to like falsify that for them. Um, but otherwise you might start validating it and you then start helping them strategize and things. Because if people are coming to you and saying, I feel this way and I perform this way, that's the first step in them taking some ownership in their training and becoming more productive and independent. And as coaches, like we want our athletes to be productive and independent because otherwise they're blowing up our phone 24 seven, asking us to make decisions for them on the fly that we can't always do, you know? Um, so just the act of saying to people, how did that feel? You know, why do you think you feel that way today? How did this feel as compared to last week? And then doing what I do in my re- weekly reflections, which is saying, you know, when you made decisions in your training this week, were they productive decisions? Do you feel confident making those decisions? Why? And then exploring those things with my clients, that really helps. Um, and going back to the language thing, also um, language in programming also, also sort of goes back to what I initially said about about you know the way in which we write a program and imposing overload and things on athletes 
is for certain athletes, I've found that that the stress of actually feeling like they have to make a decision on a day-by-day basis is too much um, and they don't like it. And so in those instances, I may actually have much more of a top-down programming approach because even though it might not be as close to like optimal in inverted commas as what I think I might get from an auto-regulated one, if at the athlete level, it's easier to train, they feel more compelled to train harder and they're in just a better psychological state and enjoying it more, I'm probably going to get a better output anyway. So at that point, deviation from what I might call quote-unquote optimal is actually more optimal, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, very interesting that you mentioned some of that sort of self-reflection stuff because I've found in my own coaching that that's probably the biggest thing that I can uh, ask of my clients is the sort of self-reflection piece, uh, you know, just asking them what they think they did well and what they could have done better in the last sort of week of training or nutrition is is almost like magic because it makes them so much more mindful of when they're actually going through with the plan and it helps to promote self-efficacy like you mentioned which is fundamentally like such an important thing you know you don't want to be that coach that is completely hands off um but likewise you don't want to be the the sort of overbearing coach that like needs someone to check in with you every day and like did you follow the numbers exactly as i put them and all this sort of stuff, you, you got to try and find something in between those two, uh, which can be pretty challenging, but you know, it's such an important thing for developing people's self-confidence with training and the ability to manage stuff themselves. Um, well, and- it's kind of like growth happens in the space around the athlete. Um, like there's, there's a concept in motor learning, which is the guidance hypothesis. And that's that when you first start teaching somebody a skill, if you give them lots of guidance, um, they perform the skill better in the learning phase. So in the acquisition phase, then if you take a break and retest them, they don't tend to outperform people who are given a lot less guidance once they've got a basic idea of what the skill is. And so a classic example might be shooting a basketball, where if your arm is in a brace that forces you to have like the perfect forearm position and things, you'll hit more baskets than somebody who's given a basketball and told to shoot. But then after a break, when you come back a week later, no brace on your arm and are asked to shoot, you do really badly. Um, and so obviously that has implications about for how we go teaching a task. You know, we, we should sort of get people like get the ball rolling with people. And as we go, we sort of pull back on our feedback and we get them, we get them taking a bit more of an independent, um, independent role in things. And the same thing is kind of true with coaching. Like when people first come to you as athletes, they do need a lot of guidance. They don't really know what's up with the program. They need to learn how to train you know, all those little things. They need to be told how to do exercises, how hard they should be working, you know, like all those little things. They need the tips and tricks. But as time goes on, if as a coach, you're too hesitant to then say, you know, you're doing well and pull back a little bit, the athlete never grows. And all they do is they sort of cling to you, um, you know, like a baby and they never like sort of spread their wings and fly. And, um, And so I do think that willingness to sort of say like, talk to me less, which sounds like I'm just trying to shirk work, but, but to say like literally do a bit more yourself and come back to me and tell me what you did and why, and we'll talk about your solutions is so big. That's the, you know, that's one of the big inflection points in an athlete's growth. And this is again, something that I've slowly changed about my coaching services over time is I, I with good reason initially thought that basically the more contact I had with my clients, the more value I was providing them. And particularly in the case of like powerlifting, which is somewhat technical, 
I was thinking, well, I've got to provide, I've got to provide motor feedback as proximal to the performance of the task as possible so that they can learn the task better. Therefore, I'm going to give them lots of feedback and I'm going to make sure they talk to me every single day of the week when they train as soon as they can. And in some ways that works. It's not bad. Certainly makes athletes feel supported. But it does exactly that is it can eventually clip people's wings. And so another reason why I've, why I've gone towards doing these weekly check-ins where I have a bit more of a global discussion of their training and their decisions and how they feel is, is that it actually gives people a bit more room to grow and it gives them a bit more objectivity and when they look back at their training. And within the week, I still do get my athletes to send me videos. But when they send me videos, I give them one or two bits of technical feedback if they're relevant. And otherwise, I kind of say, well done, how you're doing? And I just make them feel supported. And again, you know, the athletes who, who I interact with less in that way are often the ones that are actually doing really, really well. Yeah, um, reflects my experience exactly, uh, which is super interesting because it's a tough thing when you are coaching online and you want to as you mentioned, provide as much support as you can and you want to make sure people are getting like, the value of what they're investing their time and their effort and their money in. Um, and, and sometimes it feels like as a coach, you kind of have to do less to get more out of the client, but then it feels like they're getting less <laughs> when they're not really, you know? Um, I always have that issue with like nutrition when... I remember once I had a guy where we had 12 weeks together and his goal was fat loss and we changed his like macronutrients once throughout that process, but he lost four and a half kilos and he was furious at me. He was like so annoyed that I didn't make more changes, but I was like, dude, you hit your goal with the minimum amount of intervention possible. And to me, that's, that's the mark of great coaching is that I didn't really have to do much because I nailed it so much from the start or something. Um, yeah. So it's, well, it's, it's like only a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, like oh yeah, I went to the doctor and he said I'm fine. <laughs> and then you can stop. <laughs> yeah. Like well, well, shit. What would you rather? Like you have cancer? Like that's terrible. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah. No, it's super interesting. But um, I think probably one of the benefits that that certainly you have is that you've been on both sides of the fence with with being an, an athlete who's being coached. And you mentioned you've been coached by Bryce uh, at the moment as well. And you've you've had coaches previously too. Um, you know, as well as being a coach, what, what's the sort of difference in mindset there? And obviously you've learned a fair bit from it as well. Um, what's the difference between the mindset of an athlete and a coach? Hmm. I think there's, um, it's hard to say for certain, to be honest, because I would say that I'm the same person, whether I'm an athlete or a coach. Um, but I think there are traits that probably describe what's going to make you good at one or the other, if that makes sense. And in a lot of ways, they're pretty congruent. I think having good communication skills makes a very good coach. Um, and it, makes, it probably makes a coachable athlete, although I wouldn't say that they're necessary to the same degree. They're, like Certainly, communication skills aren't necessary to the same degree as athletic talent if you want to be good at a sport, but it helps. Um, but athletes, you know, people who want to be a good athlete tend to need to be reasonably self-interested or at least self-interested in the domain of their sport right um they need to be confident so you know they need to in fact bryce himself sent me 12 traits of 12 traits of high performing athletes and one the number one trait that he sent was um was sort of a belief that you have unique capabilities that make you apt for for success in a task and doing better than your competitors so 
So you need to have self-interest. You need to have confidence. You need to have an ability to switch on and off, um, switch on and off mentally and physiologically for performance tasks. And you need to be able to ignore competition specific distractions. So all of those things kind of fall under the domain of self-interest and self-confidence. And then in order to get the most out of coaching, you need to be diligent and communicative um, and you need to find somebody who shares sort of similar fundamental values with you. Um, and then on top of that, obviously you just need time and competitive experience and, you know, good guidance helps you, helps you with developing all of those things. Um, as a coach there, I wouldn't say that competitive experience is as important, although it is important from the, from the perspective of like buy-in and from the perspective of being able to give the athlete an idea of what to expect. So when athletes face, face a novel challenge, they, they like to know that the person guiding them has kind of been there. So I certainly think that if I was coaching athletes in powerlifting and they said, I'm really nervous for my first comp wheel, what's it like? And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> they'd, be, <laughs> they'd be sort of a bit worried. Um, but at the absolute highest level, you know, I, there aren't many people who themselves were whatever three-time Olympic gold medalists who are coaching Olympians. Like I bet Usain's Bolt, Usain Bolt's coach wasn't as fast as him, you know? So there's some point where competitive experience is less important. Um, and there's also, there's also a massive cost of being too self-interested as a coach as well, because your role as a coach isn't to maximize your output as the coach, it's to maximize the output of the athlete. And so again, having that sort of more empathy driven personality, or at least, at least engineering your conversations and your interactions with people to be more empathetic and to make them feel more supported is much more, much more important. And so from the athlete's perspective, when you're asking questions, the questions are, the questions should be at the very least, mostly around like, what can I do to make me better? Whereas from the coach's perspective, the questions should be much more along the lines of what can I do to make you better? Or what can I do to help you more? Um, you know, like athletes who come to me and say, this is what you can do to help me more are doing me a favor. Whereas as a coach, when I go to my athletes and occasionally I still have to do it, when I go to them and say, this is what you can do to help me do my job better. I'm like, I'm really not helping them, the athlete right now. I'm just making sure that I can, you know, conduct my career within like reasonable working hours, you know? So, so those are two very big differences. Um, but, but yeah, I'm not really sure in other domains whether things differ enormously. It's just, it's just whether you actually have an aptitude for coaching necessarily and whether it's something that you want to do or whether you're more fundamentally interested in being an athlete. And for some people, you're just much more interested in being an athlete than a coach. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm sure though, being a coach as well gives you some insight into how to be coachable as an athlete, right? Um, which is is something that I think we struggle with sometimes um, as coaches is, is just the, the expectations on the client is maybe something that that's a bit incongruous between the coach and the client. They just don't really understand like what it means to be coachable. Um, is there, do you talk about that specifically with your, your clients? Um, I do, but I actually think that what it also, what it probably highlights better to me is and particularly now that I'm trying to be more empathetic and trust me, it's hard. Um, <laughs> is it is it actually highlights to me how easy it is to slip into things as an athlete that would make you a like again quote unquote like bad client. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's very easy to 
to want to make changes that you don't feel like your coach would approve of to your training or to just skip things and not let them know. And like, I'm a pretty highly motivated person who really enjoys training. Right. And I still occasionally have the inclination to just sub out an exercise or do a couple fewer sets or whatever it happens to be, you know, um, I still have the inclination when I do a check-in to ramble for a little bit too long and not touch on the things that I said I was going to last week and be less organized. And this is as somebody who shares a career with the person that I'm, that I'm sending the thing to. So like we have a lot of mutual interest. Um, and even then I find myself occasionally doing the things that would piss me off as an athlete and realizing that has made me a lot more empathetic to my athletes when I'm like, Oh, you know, you're actually like an accountant. And, and not and not the person who's like most obsessed with powerlifting in the world. Um, so so that's one thing. I've actually almost forgotten what the what the question was. Oh, was it? Do I convey to my athletes things that make that make them more coachable? Yep. Yes, definitely. Um, but again, I think those are things that that kind of almost best come up in your individual conversations with an athlete because the the coaching arrangement that is going to suit an athlete best differs a lot person to person. Um, and there are some people, just like I said, there are some people who get a little bit stressed out having to make too many training decisions. There are others who the second you give them more rope are like, Oh, finally, you know, like I'm, I'm so glad to have that freedom. There are some people who really feel they need to talk to you regularly. There are people who feel like they don't really need to talk to you much at all, but they'll reach out if there's anything going wrong. And both of them are equally satisfied with the service. And so, and so I think on an athlete by athlete basis, having enough experience as an athlete to put yourself a little bit in their shoes, but also having enough experience as a coach to say, Hey, you know, I've had other people who feel the way that you feel, and this is an arrangement that has worked, or this is a strategy that might benefit you is useful. But I think, I think you've got to be able to draw from both sides of the coin. I don't know. That's a very mixed analogy. You've got to be able to draw from, draw from both pools of experience to, to be as productive as you can be. Yeah, cool. I like the answer. Um, very good. Uh, with, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with, with uh, a lot of what you said there. I think that um, being almost too explicit at the start, and it, it's kind of like, you know, when you start, I'm just thinking about the situation when you're starting to work with someone and you kind of go, well, this is what I expect you know, I expect to you to give me feedback on this and this and blah, 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 blah. Um, and there's obviously a structure that, that like you kind of prefer, but then there's this, as you mentioned, there's that individual nature of things where some people are going to, you know, I get, I get feedback from some people that's like pages and pages long and other people it's like, I wish they would give me a bit more to work with because it's like, how'd your week go? Yeah. Good mood. Out an eight out of 10. Okay, cool, man. Like, I'm not sure what coaching you're expecting me to help you out with here, but you're not telling me anything. And I think sometimes just setting up that expectation at the start is helpful, but it also seems to be like a bit of a kind of overload situation sometimes where you're giving them too much information. Like here's a new nutrition plan. Here's a new training plan. Oh, and here's how, you know, the guidelines of how everything works goes and all that sort of stuff. And um, I, it actually occurred to me like not too long ago that it's a similar concept that, I mean, even what we were talking about earlier with giving too much training cues, you know, you, you give too many cues and then people kind of just like half of them, they can't even focus on, um, you know, so is there a, is there kind of a, a general set of principles or ideas or anything that you kind of titrate out to your clients over time uh, 
you know, when, when you're providing them information, like I'll give an example. Like if I have a week where, you know, kind of everything's gone pretty well, um, there's not a whole lot of changes we need to make. To me, that's a, a good opportunity for me to go like, cool, let's keep on keeping on. And now here's an opportunity that I've got a bit of space where I can provide a bit more education or something like that. Whereas if there's a week where it's like, shit, I need to talk to them about their sleep, about some of the nutrition stuff, about stress management. It's like, I don't want to give them too much information here. So I'm just going to pick one or two things and then leave it there and maybe wait for next week to talk about something else. Is that something that you do as well? Um, not in like an incredibly explicitly planned way, but it is, it is still something that I do. And I think what you said about like, waiting for space to deal with to deal with things is important um if you like i think if somebody is having a very good week of training like you said and there's not really much to comment on that can be a very good time to talk about any of those like longer term more chronic things that you want to get a hold of both because they got a bit of momentum they're probably feeling confident at that stage and because it's not something new but when i'm making a lot of wholesale training changes here and there i'll be like you know what i'll leave x and y thing for later um, and we'll talk about that soon. And particularly when it is something a little bit more chronic where it's not like this is going to be a problem next week. It's just going to be a small handbrake until we get a hold of it. As a coach, part of your job is almost like making value judgments and saying, well, where am I going to actually get the best return? And am I going to resolve that efficiently now or should I do it later? And I think it's, um, I think it's a bit of a case of that sort of when the student is ready to master a peers thing as well where if you if you sort of just prompt people and nudge them and you get them reflecting on the things that you want them to change oftentimes what ends up happening is they initiate the conversation and when they do it's like voila you know they've come to me ready to change and asking for the information suddenly i can give it whereas if somebody's not not ready to listen to you or not wanting to change a certain behavior or haven't even realized it's a problem yet you can almost like you, you can either spend all your time trying to knock down the door and they're not listening, or you can like nocebo them by making them anxious about something that wasn't the biggest roadblock anyway. Um, and kind of related to that is something I've been doing. I started this initially when coronavirus lockdown hit and I was like super anxious about potentially being broke really quickly. So I was like, I better, I better over-service the shit out of my clients or else they'll all leave me. Um, and I started doing these, um, these Zoom catch-ups for my clientele um, where we all do a bunch of group reflection. So I might have like a broad discussion topic um, and then we just have like some fun chit-chat after, usually like a would-you-rather style question or something for laughs. And what I found was happening is, is people were coming in, we would talk about X or Y topic and everybody would get that chance to sort of get some vicarious experience and learn from what other people had gone through and strategies that worked for them, which is cool. And that's stuff you can bank and use later. Um, but then occasionally people would come back to me in the next check-in they sent me or, you know, a couple down the track and say, you know, that discussion that we were having about X, Y, and Z, you know, really resonated with me. And I've just been thinking about blah. And suddenly they're almost producing solutions to their problems too. And so to bring it all the way back to almost answering your original question is when, when it feels appropriate, I'll bring things up. But often I think coaching is almost like planting the seeds and sort of showing people, showing people like examples of things that they can do to be more productive or highlighting to them the ways that they can be more productive and, and trying to engender that sense of ownership and desire to, to sort of do the things that will make them better rather than just tick the boxes or avoid the things that they think are bad, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, makes plenty of sense. And I think that's a really smart way of doing things. Um, again, promoting that sort of self-efficacy and, and self-direction that we spoke before. Uh, this will be a smooth segue, but anyway, um, we sort of mentioned a bit before about, uh, or earlier before we started the conversation about sort of specialization versus uh, more more general skills, I suppose. Um, and you mentioned that you kind of had some thoughts on that. Uh, so I'll leave it broad and just basically ask you what your thoughts are on being a generalist versus um, specializing. Sure. Um, soon as I've gotten over the whiplash from that, that really, it was really good. Um, you know, let me tell you, I host a podcast. It's not easy having a discussion. <laughs> I mean, particularly with Alex Hayes. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, you put, when you asked me on, you sort of, you said, oh, here are a few things I'd like to talk about. And you wrote like specialization first, first being a generalist or something. Mm. And what I said was like, I'm so glad you put that there. Cause it's something I've been thinking about. And I wrote this note in my phone because I here and there on my Instagram, I do like these diatribe style stories where I say stuff and most people don't read them, but the people that they do often like them. And what I was going to write was that specialist skills are built off of generalist knowledge and generalist skills as well. And by that, I mean, like, you know, my first degree was in exercise science and a lot of the stuff that you might consider like specialist powerlifting coaching skills or knowledge that I have was really built off of super duper basic functional anatomy stuff that I learned there. Um, you know, and like basic biomechanics and stuff like that, where I didn't, I didn't go in and get like a complex biomechanical understanding of the squat before I just vaguely knew what extends the knee and how forces and torques work and stuff. And having that fundamental knowledge makes it so much easier for me to learn new things when I do need to learn specialist skills because I have the bedrock already there. That's number one. Um, and number two is I think when we too quickly generalize as fit, um, sorry, too quickly specialize as fitness professionals and really, really like niche hard into our particular area of interest, we lose so many opportunities to draw inspiration from other fields. Um, and, you know, some of the things that I do in my powerlifting coaching practice, whether it is actual coaching or programming or whatever, I draw from, and by actual coaching, I mean the way in which I talk to clients and stuff. I draw from my experience playing rugby. I draw from things that I learned from lecturers at uni. I draw from, you know, just basic skills that I've learned in other places too. Um, and I think that, I think that if your scope is too narrow, then you just, you miss a whole lot of tools that could potentially be in your toolbox to make you a more effective practitioner. And particularly, I think I, I half said this before, particularly in the case of, you know, most people listening to this are probably interested in strength or hypertrophy or something. When you have adaptations that sort of occur on such a broad spectrum, like strength and hypertrophy adaptations, where lots of training means are sufficient to get you there. And the things that actually contribute to strength are multifactorial. The things that contribute to increased muscle size are, are actually multiple as well. They're not just one thing. And so being, being incredibly hyper-specialized in your approach to them actually trades off on your ability to make up ground in the other components that are perhaps less considered by your preferred approach. Yeah, 
Love it. I think that's really important. You know, it's something that more, you know, it's, it's specific to training in, in many ways, but it's also more broadly applicable to pretty much everything in life, I think, where you can collect skills or ways of thinking or ways of, of looking at the world from different areas. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Um, you know, although you do need to spend some time in some kind of specific uh, niche or specific area to get really good at it. At the same time, I think people do get a bit hyper-focused on that. And it's, it's something that's always been preached in the fitness industry. As long as I've been in it, it's like, yeah, man, find a niche and specialize in it. You know, it's got to be, you know, young power lifters or whatever. And it, like, I never found that that was that, uh, that great for me, to be honest. Like, I, I feel like having the variety not only keeps me fresh and keeps me learning more, but also allows me to take some concepts that I've utilized with some clients and give them to other clients. We might not have thought of, of using that kind of communication or coaching or programming or anything like that before. Um, well, also like in the case of say young powerlifters, like how niche is that niche really? You know, young powerlifters still encompasses everybody from, rank beginners who've never really trained, but just are interested in powerlifting to like world-class competitors. There's men, women, there's people who dedicate all their time to being an athlete. There's busy uni students with no money who survive on peanut butter, you know, and people everywhere in the middle, people who are doing internships at law firms. Like it's just, you know, even within that supposedly niche niche, there's a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> like, you know, they're not the same thing. Yeah, totally. You know, but the, nonetheless, you get people then coming in and going like, "Oh well, yeah, I really like working with you know, powerlifters in their in their early twenties, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to take anyone who's looking to do bodybuilding." And it's like, dude, <laughs> there's so much crossover there. There is like, hang on, if you're doing an, a hypertrophy phase for your powerlifting people, like, isn't that fundamentally bodybuilding? I mean, there's so much crossover there, and, and hypertrophy being kind of more of a side effect of the training stimulus rather than like a, a goal in and of itself is, you know, something that we could always debate, but it's pretty interesting that there's a lot of stuff that crosses over with fitness uh, and health in general. Um, you know, the same sort of principles that work for getting someone stronger will work for uh, getting them bigger. Well, you know, in, from a nutrition standpoint, the same principles that work for fat loss will work for muscle gain, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, maybe it's a case of people not really thinking from a principles perspective. Do you think maybe that's mm. true? Yeah, I think, I think that that's true. Um, I do have to say the other side of like the flip side is also true, which is that if you are too much of a generalist, you can't quite take on truly specialist tasks. I think everyone recognizes that. And, you know, I, I could train an off season bodybuilder. I would feel pretty comfortable doing it. But if somebody said to me, Hey, Will, like I want to get on stage. I would, that would be actually a pretty steep learning curve for me, particularly navigating those last few weeks of prep or pro actually probably the last 10 weeks of prep when they start feeling like a psycho and everything. That would be really hard. Um, but certainly I can recognize that I have the general skill set to help them. And I think being encouraged to think just adjacent to your box is, is also helpful because you start making some useful extrapolations on your knowledge and probably highlights where you have a few little gaps as well. So say it happens to be that you're, you're a primarily powerlifting coach who has somebody who says, I just want to do general hypertrophy training. When you start going, okay, well, suddenly I'm not constrained by powerlifting anymore. Like, are there more useful tools for me to get hypertrophy of the quads than squats for this bloke who, let's just say, isn't very well built really for squatting or like 
doesn't have a very knee dominant looking squat pattern, you know, suddenly I actually have to start thinking like how am I going to structure exercise selection differently? Do my progression plans that, that I use for squats actually really suit this new exercise? Like, you know, how am I going to coach this? Like what motivational aspects are different things like that. So it just, it just rounds you out a little bit, you know, mm. it's, it's super interesting with, um, you know, with the body or, or human physiology in general, because I think that if you have, you know, we spoke a bit before about how if you're moving in the right direction and you're in this sort of general ballpark, then sweating the details is often like not as helpful. But at the same time, because it is a complex biological system, it's like you can dive as deep as you want to get into any little thing. Uh, and it's it's funny how it can kind of be, you have this weird sort of dichotomy where it's like, yeah, it's good enough if you're getting close enough to failure. That's fine. But then you could dive in and be like, okay, but for this specific exercise, for this specific strength curve, you know, we're going to track volume differently for this exercise because of this and this and this. And you can get so detailed in it that, um, you know, you can't find your way out. And it's an interesting thing to hold those two kind of concepts simultaneously in your mind. Yeah, I think the, the trick is to realize that we operate largely on heuristics um, and heuristics are really useful, but they're still heuristics. And so, you know, while I might say that like a set of eight and a set of 10 and a set of 12 and a set of 15 that are equally close to failure are equivalent, that's not necessarily perfectly true. And it's not going to be perfectly true in every, every scenario. And so there are situations where I might have to abandon that heuristic. I can't think of one straight off the top of my head, but I'm sure they exist. Um, and just about anything else that we might, we might sort of, use a simple soundbite around we could say the same thing is you know this is a shortcut to getting us pretty close to the right answer but you need a fundamental understanding of like the complexity underpinning things to make to make detailed decisions beyond that point um and i think one of the one of the easy to fall in errors in in sort of thinking in fitness and particularly when you're trying to be evidence-based is you go from having no knowledge or or just like you know, quote unquote, bro science knowledge to having an understanding of what happens to be true. But you develop that understanding and you end up with kind of like soundbite science where, you know, X, Y, and Z are equivalent on paper. Therefore, they are equivalent. Whereas in reality, it's probably not the case that they're actually exactly the same. Um, it's that they're near enough to the same under certain conditions that it's fine. And, you know, this is a whole other bag of worms, but... The other thing is in science, when we report that things are the same on average, like all the same across a population, that doesn't mean that on the individual level that you can just apply that to every single person or you could apply either of the two options, say to every single person and expect the same result. Actually, what you would expect is really different results on individual levels that net out to roughly the same. And so part of your goal as a coach is to say, well, if from a principal's perspective, it doesn't matter whether I do sets of eight, 10, 12, or 15, because they're going to produce roughly similar hypertrophy across a population. Is there a reason for this individual or for this particular exercise or something that one of them may or may not be better? And then you make the decision, <laughs> you know, um, not, oh, they're equivalent. So fuck it. I'll just see whatever my finger hits first on the keyboard and send them that. Like <laughs> there, there still has to be a basis for your decisions. It's just, you know, it's just a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, I agree with that. 
completely. And it, it gives us something to maybe get a starting point and then to refine for the individual as we go along. And, and really, if you're a good coach, then the, your programming will sort of slowly improve as you kind of work out that coaching relationship with the person involved. And, you know, to your point, I was actually going to bring that up, you know, the individual versus the average. A, a quick example is the sort of 10 to 20 working sets per week for hypertrophy for a muscle group. It's like, hang on, man, like, that's double, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, that's there's a such lot. a huge range there, like, holy shit. So um, certainly as a heuristic, that's cool, but I'm not just going, ah, yeah, I'll give this bloke like 15 sets and this bloke 18 sets a week on every body part. It's just not going to work that way. Um, cool, man. Uh, so we've been ch chatting for quite a while. We'll probably start to wrap up, but is there anything in particular you're working on at the moment you want to let people know about? Um, I wish I could say so, but <laughs> um, look, I, you know, I've recently moved into a new place. So I'm working on my domestic skills um, Very good. and it's a steep learning curve. Like, yeah, how's it going? You know, it's a, uh, not good at all. Uh, really <laughs> bad. It's good. I have a Dyson. So, so I've been vacuuming a lot. Sometimes I vacuum even when the floor doesn't need vacuuming just because it makes me feel productive. Um, but beyond that, it's a disaster. I've set off the smoke alarm probably four times a week since I've been here. So my neighbors hate me. Um, but in, in a slightly, <laughs> slightly more serious, um, note, I, I've been going a little bit slower doing sort of business, um, in business changing stuff recently. Um, during lockdown, I did make a few changes to, to the way in which I ran my business, but right now I'm, I'm trying to fill the last of my books for both my one-to-one -one and squad coaching streams. So so I have my one-to-one -one coaching service, which is fully individualized programming and, you know, talk to people multiple times through a week, have a weekly check-in. Um, and then my squad powerlifting programming, which is, which is roughly half the price of my one-to-one one. -to -one, um, and with them, I operate on some generalized templates. And this actually speaks to what we were talking about before Luke, where we were saying you can't apply the same program to, to 10 different people. Um, the way I wrote those templates was basically with big brackets around volume and intensity and then big drop down lists for exercise selection so that I can still provide something individual person by person. Um, anyway, there's about five spots left in the squad um, and everybody who's doing it, big or small, male or female, is doing well as well. But my focus right now is basically fill, fill the remaining spots in those two streams of coaching. Um, and then something that I do want to start working on in the next little while is a bit more educational content for personal trainers. So, so my goal is basically have that have that side of my business set up well enough that I can do that. And then hopefully there'll be sort of more to come on the education part, but I do really want to actually start, start bringing together all these things I keep talking about from a coaching perspective and turning it into something formal and helpful for other people. Yeah. And I think it'd be super helpful. We've obviously chatted a little bit sort of behind the scenes about, that stuff and i really think what um you can offer on that front would be incredibly helpful for a lot of coaches out there so um definitely looking forward to seeing what you come up with on that front uh where can people find you mate what's your instagram website that sort of stuff yeah sure um so on instagram i'm at w.berkmanpt um and i alternate between posting really really stupid stuff for a laugh and mostly helpful things so if you go into my highlights, you can click through and there's, there's a highlight called exercise demos. That one's the helpful exercise demos. Then there's one that's question mark exercise demos. That one's all jokes. 
but through in my highlights, you should be able to find some useful information. Um, and I do do Q and A's and things. So Instagram is at w.berkmanpt. You can follow that. My website is willberkman.com. So literally my name.com. And I have some blog posts there. They tend to go reasonably in depth. Um, and you can email me as well at will at willberkman.com. I'm usually pretty happy for a chat as well. So any of those three is the best way to get to me. Awesome. Highly recommended everybody who is listening. Thanks for coming on, man. We'll chat soon. No, thank you. Appreciate it.